Father, we come into your presence this morning for far deeper reasons than simply because we want your help. We come because we're desperate. We come because we have no strength and ability apart from you. We come into the presence of the one whose yoke is easy and burden is light for you are gentle and lowly in heart. We come tired, we come weary, we come worried, we come broken, we come in need, Father. God, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your wisdom to help us in the challenges that lie in front of us. We ask for your peace to calm us in the despair that we feel. We ask for your hope in the midst of grief. Father, we ask for your direction when there are open doors around us and we know you have a mission for us. We know you have a plan for us. And so, Father, we don't just want simple, trite answers today. We don't just want to hear that you have a plan for everything and everyone, Father. We want your presence in us so that we can live in full confidence of that. And Father, we're not looking for today as your body, with you as our head, we're not just looking for a bunch of individual experiences of you. We're not looking for more information about you so that each one of us can be a little bit smarter, a little bit more informed. Father, what we're looking for is a corporate experience of the presence of God unfolding in us, that your spirit would be present in us, reminding us of our redemption. And oh, Father, if you would, redeeming some, regenerating some for the first time this morning. We know it is your will. And so, Father, we ask we ask that you move not just in some of us, but in all of us, in all of us together, that, that we may actually experience you in a new way, experience what we just sang, remind ourselves of our need for you. Father, may each one of us leave this room fully confident in who you are and of your grace for us. But God, more than that, show us. Show us how you'd have us walk today. How you'd have us respond today. Because, Father, we know that the harvest is plentiful. We know that your kingdom is moving. We know that the gates of hell cannot withstand the movement of your kingdom. So, Father, just show us where we can be a part of that. Show us where we can be a part of your eternal mission 
for the sake of the hearts and minds of people. Because, Father, you will receive the glory. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Father, we want you to receive the glory. And God, we pray. Now, we turn our hearts and minds out of this room. And we pray now for every local body of believers in our community. As we know that there are other churches gathered in your presence, some big, some small, and everywhere in between. So wherever in our community there is a gathering of your body today, Father, I pray your presence in them. I pray that the word of God would be clear, that the spirit of God would be present, and that your blessing would be on your body gathered all throughout this community. Father, I, I pray a specific prayer now for Crosspoint Christian Center a church in our community who has um, just had somebody taken by ambulance in one of their services or this morning, Father. We pray for your protection. We pray for your presence. We pray for your healing, God. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would be with that church, that your name would be honored, that your word would be clear in the midst of great pain and confusion, Father. We pray for your healing, and we pray for your presence. And now, God, we draw our attention back to this room, back to our local body of believers, and we ask for the clarity of your word here. We ask for you to move in us. Speak through your word to the hearts and minds of people so that we might walk out in clarity of what you would have us do in response. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for gathering here this morning in the presence of our risen King. Let's have the kids dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's three years old through the fifth grade. And uh, parents, you can pick your kids up uh, upstairs after the service. Thank you so much for entrusting us with your children. It's funny, I always want to address the parents because it's such an honor to minister to the parents, but I always do it when they're most distracted and their kids are leaving. Um, but if you're still listening to me and you're a parent, thank you for letting us minister to your kids. Um, coming up in the life of the church, we have a new members class a week from today. In the evening, it will meet during Awana and, um, and youth, uh, the youth group meeting. It will be at, uh, we'll get started about 6.15 next Sunday, October the 3rd. And when I say a new members class, it's really, we call it Fellowship 101. It's an informational meeting, and it could result in you deciding to join uh, as a member of the church at the end of the meeting, or it could just mean uh, you wanted some information. You've been here, it doesn't matter if you've been here one time or a hundred times. If you want some information about, uh, more information about the ministry of the church, how the church operates, how the leadership structure of the church works, how ministries in the church work, all of that stuff, you can come and hear that um, a week from today, Sunday evening, um, October the 3rd. Let me know or let the church office know if you want to be a part of that. And uh, we've got at least a couple people that are already going to do that if we need um, to bring in more. Um, and if you're interested, if that time doesn't work, like we can do this in big groups or small groups. Anytime I have a couple people, I just put together a group. And, uh, and if it needs to be an individual meeting, we can do that too. But if you have interest in this process, 
either join us next Sunday evening or come to me and we'll set up another time to do that. Also, uh, we have a sign-up sheet in the lobby for our next women's ministry event, which is October the 16th. And um, that's a Saturday, Saturday evening. There will be a dinner, and it's actually going to be outside between these two buildings. And so we want you to be aware of that. Um, All ladies are invited to that. There is a sign-up sheet in the lobby um, about that, and there's more information. You'll, You'll see that in email and reminders about that event. And then finally, we have a meeting I told you about last week about a mission trip to Romania happening um, over Christmas uh, break this year. And so the last week of December, the first week of January, we have a group of people that are going to go to Romania to help equip and encourage um, church leaders and church members over there to participate in a saturate outreach event, much like we did in the fall of 2019 here. And so if you have any interest in that, if you want more information about that, come and see me or Tom Perry immediately after the service, and there's a meeting at 4.30 today. Um, 4.30 today, there is a meeting about that if you want to be involved in that ministry. Now turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 11. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Who said that? I hope you know that Abraham Lincoln was not the first person to say that. But perhaps within the history of our country was one of the most significant popularizers of that statement. Because in 1858, when he was nominated to run in the race for the United States Senate, he was he gave his first speech of the campaign, and it was titled, A House Divided Against Itself Cannot Stand. And in that, in that speech, he quoted Jesus in the passage we're looking at today. But it was a controversial speech at the time. In fact, um, some of those around him, some of his closest confidants, were concerned about the way he was framing the debate. Because make no mistake what Lincoln was saying. The division he saw was slavery. In fact, as he quotes, a house divided against itself cannot stand. The very next sentence is a nation that is half in support of slavery and half against slavery cannot make it over the long term. And so there was a significant national statement, national political statement Abraham Lincoln was making there that created this incredible controversy. His opponent actually used it against him. And when his opponent was using it against him, his, his um, advisors were saying, if he's going to, if the opponent is going to be criticizing the word of God, you should probably call him on it to say, hey, let's remind him. Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first one that said it. Jesus said that first. And so this great controversy of the late 1850s uh, centering around Abraham Lincoln in this speech, uh, Lincoln lost that race for the U.S. Senate. But that speech and that campaign, that race, put him onto the national stage that led to two years later him being elected the president. And we know the history of of Lincoln. We know all that. I just want to draw out that famous popularization of this biblical statement. A house divided against itself cannot stand. What Lincoln shows us is there are multiple ways to apply this. It's just a general principle that Jesus is giving, and you can apply that to a family. It's literally a house. You can apply that to a country, as Lincoln did. You can apply that to a local church. You can apply that to a business. You can apply that to just about any organization you can think of. 
But first and foremost, Jesus was applying it to a spiritual kingdom, to the battle of his kingdom against the kingdom of Satan. And that's where we're jumping in today. But today's journey is a journey in spiritual warfare, a journey in the battle for unity in the midst of division, a battle to understand what all this weird demonic stuff is that Jesus is talking about. And so if you're one of those people that gets really uncomfortable and weird when people in church start talking about demons, we're going to have to get comfortable with it today because this is Jesus talking about demons. Like we have to recognize that while there's a bunch of weird stuff that goes on within all of this idea of deliverance ministry and, and battle against the demonic, I understand some of it's weird, but this is Jesus's take. Okay, so we're, we're going to listen and we're going to engage in Jesus's take and how he handles the demonic here. But where we're ultimately going is this sense that in this battle against the spiritual, in this battle of Christ's kingdom against the kingdom of this world, Jesus is calling his, calling his followers together. He's calling his followers together to unite with him and around him for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of his purposes and plan. And so, yes, this, this message is about spiritual warfare, but this message is also about the necessity of unity in the challenges that we face. The necessity of unity and the deadliness of division. Because Jesus is right. Abraham Lincoln is right. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And so let me, let me go a different direction here for, for a second. I'm just going to make a point. Let's talk about last week for a second. How many of you remember what last week's sermon was about. Now, please don't raise your hands because it's just going to make me feel bad. Um, but think about it for a second. How many of you remember what you were doing exactly a week ago at this time? What were we talking about? Now, how many of you felt at the time there was some sort of application you needed to do something about it? I'll give you a hint. The first answer is we talked about the Lord's Prayer from Luke 11, 1 through 14 last week. We talked seven principles on prayer we saw from Luke 11, 1 through 14. So how many of you a week ago, whether you were in the service and the other service watching at home, watching later afterwards, how many of you felt like there's something I need to do with what I've heard? And now, how many of you actually did that something that you were supposed to do last week? See, see here's my, my theory. I think that we come away from these meetings like this where we hear the word of God proclaimed. And I think a lot of us are walking out with really good ideas of what we're gonna do about it, how we're going to apply it, and what steps forward we need to take in our relationship with Christ in light of the word of God that we've heard. I think that we're a room full of good intentions at 12 o'clock on Sunday. But I think that what often happens is we just forget we lose sight of the truth that we've heard. And so my guess is, if any of you have done anything, taken any steps in application from what you heard last week, those of you that did it talked to somebody about it. If you've done anything to take a step forward in your prayer life this past week, since last week's sermon, the, the odds are that you did it because you had a conversation with at least one other person about what you heard last week, and, and that discussion that you had with another person actually sp spurred you forward. Because that's how relationship works. 
That's how community works. So if we're going to talk about unity, community, we're going to talk about division, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare, let's, let's get something clear here. That if we're going to apply the word of God, the word of God is applied best in the context of community. And so for, for this sermon, let, let's, let's work together, let's agree together that this is going to be something that we're going to seek to apply, not individually in my prayer closet with God. There's nothing wrong with praying in your prayer closet with God, right? But if we are going to really hear the word of God and keep it, which is what this passage talks about, if we're going to do that when we need to do it in the context of relationship with other people, we need to go somebody, to somebody on Sunday afternoon and say, hey, this was my challenge from Sunday. We need to go to a life group on Sunday night, which there's multiple now on Sunday night's meeting. You need to go to a life group on Sunday night and say to your group, hey, this is the challenge I received from the Spirit of God working through the Word of God so that I might take a step forward in my life with Christ. So yeah, it's true. We know a house divided against itself cannot stand. I, I'm going to give you a, another idea about community here. A Christian isolated remains isolated. And if we're going to act against the kingdom of Satan that is so clearly on display in this passage, then we need to act together. We need to walk together. We need to hear the word of God together. We need to apply the word of God together. We need to reflect on the word of God together. So that's our goal for this morning to act against division in favor of unity for the sake of the building of the kingdom of God. So 11, Luke 11, verse 14 is where we'll start. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Okay, I, I'm gonna, I don't wanna interrupt the reading of the word of God too much, but I, I wanna make a statement here as we, I told you, sometimes it's weird to talk about demons, okay? Sometimes it gets uncomfortable to talk about demons. Notice in this passage, as we go through how normal it is for Jesus to not only talk about demons, but to talk to demons. Notice there's no like glitz and glam in the way Jesus sends the demon out of this person. It actually is very subtle and simple in Luke's telling of the story. There's no special words that are spoken. There's no incantations. There's no songs. There's no smells. There's no processes. There's no nothing except Jesus just speaking a word to a demon and the demon going out of the person. And, and so that's one thing. Sometimes when we talk about the demonic, sometimes we, we get ourselves all worked up because of what we've heard about the demonic or the way other people have handled the demonic and deliverance ministry and things like that. Notice how simple this is for Jesus. He's in control. He's always in control. He speaks a word. Everybody listens. The, even the disciples have the ability to cast out demons, except when what? What's the failure of the disciples we talked about a couple weeks ago with regard to demons? They forgot to pray. It's not that they forgot to do some specific ritual. It's not that they forgot to do, say the right incantation. It's not that they didn't sing the right song. It's not that they didn't do the right process. They literally just didn't pray. They literally just didn't ask Jesus. And so notice here, sometimes we get all worked up and all weirded out by demonic stuff when for Jesus, it's just the way the universe works. There's an ongoing battle between spiritual good and spiritual evil, and Jesus has won the victory. And Jesus here 
simply proclaims with a word his victory, and the demon's gone. Verse 15, but some said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now notice Jesus' simple logic. Jesus does this miraculous sign and the people marvel. Now, notice, there's a little bit of craziness around the casting out of demons. But as I said before, Jesus' actions are really simple. Jesus just casts out the demon. And the craziness comes after that. Jesus isn't the crazy one, guys. Jesus isn't going through all of, these, all of these different processes in order to get these demons out. Jesus speaks a word, and the demons cower, and then the crowd causes the uproar. And in this, the crowd is saying, of course, of course he has control over, over demons. He's in league with Satan. That's, what, that's the statement here. That's the accusation. They are saying Jesus and Satan are on the same side. Beelzebul is a name for Satan. It's actually kind of a derogatory name derived from the name of the false god Baal. Literally means something like the Lord of the Flies. And so Jesus is being accused here of being in league with Satan. That's why he can control demons because he and Satan are on the same team. Jesus uses simple logic to say, you guys make no sense. Because he said, if I was on the side of Satan, why would I be working against Satan? That's where the statement, a house divided against itself, cannot stand. He's saying, why would I cast out demons that work for Satan if I also worked for Satan? Clearly, I am not in league with Satan because I'm working against him. And oh, by the way, he, ta he takes it another step forward. He kind of confronts them a little bit. Verse 19, if I cast out demons by Satan, then what about the Jewish exorcists? Because Jesus wasn't the only one that was casting out demons. Jews in the name of Yahweh were casting out demons in those days. Okay, so he looks at the scribes and, and the Pharisees and whoever else was accusing him to say, you guys are talking about me and what I do, but your own boys over here, what about your kids? He calls them your sons. What about the guys that grew up in your own community? that are also casting out demons. Are they in league with Satan too? He says, your logic doesn't make sense. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we see the logic of what Jesus is doing here, but I want us to, to not miss the logic of the unity of the kingdom of God here in this too. That what Jesus is actually describing is the kingdom of Satan. He's talking more about the kingdom of Satan throughout this passage than he is the kingdom of God because he's saying it doesn't make sense for the kingdom of Satan to be acting against itself, to be at war with itself, or it will fall. And so, guys, let's, let's take that principle here and apply it to us, apply it to the 21st century body of Christ, the kingdom of God in our day. It does not make sense for us to be divided against ourselves. It does not make sense for us as Christians to, as Paul said, bite and devour one another. But rather, as Jesus prayed in John 17 that Jason's already brought out for us today, 
the world will know. The world will know that we are the disciples of Jesus based on our love for one another, based on our unity with one another. And this is the witness of the early church, the first couple centuries of the church. We see this, that they, they, they shook Rome. They, they, they turned Rome, Roman society on its head. Why? Because the Roman, even the Roman governmental leaders of the day were taking note. Boy, these people, they serve. They love. They care for one another, and they even care for those that aren't a part of them. So the earliest Christians, they didn't just take care of their own widows and orphans. They started taking care of Roman widows and orphans, too. That was weird. How did these people experience so much unity, so much love for each other, so, so much togetherness? It was because of the bond of the unity that comes from being bonded to Jesus. So the, the first thing I want us to see here is that this divided house is being applied to the kingdom of Satan. And we dare not let it be applied to us, to our families, to, to our relationships, to our church. We need to be unified by being one with Jesus. It's the only way, really. The only way human beings can experience unity with each other is to first be uned be united to Jesus. To be in union with Christ is to create the possibility of being in union with another human being created in the image of God that is also in union with Christ. So that's the ground of our unity, not try harderness. The ground of our unity isn't to just let things go and not deal with hard issues. The ground of our unity isn't to just be better about being nice to each other. The ground of our unity is to be united with Jesus first. And then on the basis of that unity, walk as one. So as we're unpacking this, we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about unity. We're also talking about houses and signs. And so, so our journey for today, that, that's the first house is the divided house. But we go from the divided house to the protected house to the clean house. And then we talk about two signs, the sign of blessing and the sign of judgment. So let's jump in now to the protected house in verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, this analogy should be clear, but let's make sure we're on the same page here. Satan is the strong man. Satan is the fully armed strong man. The house is Satan's dominion, which Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. First uh, John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the power of Satan, the adversary. Uh, in Luke 4, Satan gives Jesus the temptation of, do you want me to make you Lord over any of these cities because I have control, power over these cities? So we know that Satan has some level of dominion, some level of reign and authority over the world as the prince of the power of the air. And so Satan has his defenses set up in this kingdom. The defenses are the demons, like the one that made this guy mute in the story. And Jesus is the stronger man. Satan is the strong man. The earth is his house. And the stronger man is Jesus. And, and this is what he is, this is his illustration. 
expounding on verse 20 when he says, if I did this by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God is coming. You know that there's new authority. You know that there's a new power that is broken in. You know that there is a, a new reign that is happening because the ruler, the old ruler, is following, is, is falling, and the new ruler is ascending to power. And so the kingdom of God comes as a stronger man busting into the home of a strong man, weakening his defenses, destroying his defenses, taking over the house. And that's what Jesus did. That was the coming of the kingdom in the incarnation, in the cross, in the empty tomb. Jesus, the stronger man, coming to overtake Satan, coming to uh, overtake his defenses. But look at verse 23. There's no neutrality. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no Switzerland option. There's no neutral option in this battle. Within the kingdom of God, you're either with Jesus or you're opposed to Jesus. And y'all, this is such a subtle trick we, we play on ourselves. This is, you want to talk about the demonic? This is what the demonic does to us. The demonic convinces humans every day that they can be neutral when it comes to their faith. The, the demonic convinces people created in the image of God that the nice thing to do, that the safe thing to do is just to not come to hard conclusions one way or another. That actually, it would be more peaceful if you just said, well, you know, I'm not saying there's not a God. I'm not saying the spiritual doesn't exist. I'm just saying, I don't understand it. I don't know, so I'm just going to live in tolerance of everybody, and I'm going to be kind to everybody. That sounds really good. And I believe some people that take that mindset have some really good intentions because they've seen faith divide people. They've seen grumpy people that have confidence in God and faith in God. But the problem is Jesus doesn't allow that option for any of us. The other subtle trick that we do is we say, well, right now, that's just not my priority. Right now, I'm, my priority is my own relationships, my priority is my own studies. My priority is my own career. But then maybe someday when I have kids, when I get married, when the kids are older, after I graduate, once I have enough established in the bank account, then I'll get serious about my faith. But for right now, it's just not a big priority to me. That subtle trick that we allow ourselves to be tricked into that subtle trick puts us opposed to Jesus. Why? Because we're not following him if we're putting him off. We're not following him if we're delaying thoughts of him until tomorrow. And Jesus says, you're either following or you're opposed. Not you're either following, you're opposed, or you're just hanging out in the middle somewhere. There's no middle. There's no neutral ground. And so the challenge from Jesus here is to be with him. And to be with Jesus is to be with his body, to be with his bride, to be gathered with him, to be gathered in his presence. And that for us, knowing what we know now, that Jesus has called his body his church, and we have an opportunity to gather together in the presence of God under the name of Christ and to represent him to the world so that the world may know 
know that, the, that we need to take a side in this, that we need to gather, that we need to be together, that we need to stand together for the sake of Christ's kingdom and his glory. So we have the divided house, we have the protected house, and then we have the clean house. And this is where the demonic gets weird and confusing, guys. But this is Jesus' teaching, so let's keep going. Verse 24. When the unclean spirit, a demon, when an unclean spirit or a demon has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, we can have a discussion about why demons don't like water, but that's not really our point for today. There's all sorts of interesting things that come up in these passages about, about demons and demonic activity and spiritual warfare, and we can't go into it. But what is Jesus telling us here? That empty houses get filled. And so let me, let me give you a picture of what he's talking about. He, he's, he's talking about somebody who has a demon cast out of them. Has a demon cast out of them. Maybe in the name of God. Maybe by one of those Jewish exorcists. Maybe by Jesus. Maybe by one of his disciples. But that person, their focus is not on the power of the person who has cast out the demon, but on the clean state of their own house, their heart. And so that person doesn't then take that house that is now emptied of demonic oppression and fill it with the presence of God. That person then is just cleaning up their house, cleaning up their behavior in such gratitude and appreciation for the fact that they're no longer under the oppression of the demonic. They just go out and live and they say, boy, this feels good. I feel better. Now I can just go on about my life. Empty houses get filled. And so what happens by moral effort, what happens by trying harder is this person cleans up the house of their heart and makes it all nice and tidy and clean and creates more space for more demons to come, for more evil to come in. And what's missing in this person? The presence of the Holy Spirit of God coming in and filling them and doing the cleansing for them. Remember, we closed last week with seven points of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that cleanses us. Stop trying to clean up your own house. It doesn't work. Stop trying to make your heart more pure by your own efforts. Stop trying to battle against the spiritual and the dark on your own strength or by your own power. It doesn't work. What this person being discussed by Jesus lacks is the presence of the Holy Spirit. This person lacks yielding their knee and yielding their heart to God for his work, for his regenerative effort. And so if you do not have the Holy Spirit, then your house is still vacant. And as long as that house of your heart is vacant, somebody's rushing in there. And you either turn over your heart and your life to the one who gives life, or you allow your heart and your life open to evil and darkness and death. The one who gives life brings the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's a beautiful thing, the life that is renewed, reborn by the presence of Jesus. 
But this person, you know, when that demon goes out and the house is empty, they look really good on the outside and that should scare us all. That there are some people that look really good on the outside that are so empty on the inside that they're leaving open the opportunity for the darkness to come in, for the demonic to come in and influence and oppress and mislead. And so the clean house is one that yields itself to Jesus. That's how you get clean. Now, two signs here. Verse 27, he goes on. And remember, one of the things that was presented early on in verse uh, 16, he talks about the wicked generation looking for a sign. Or he, he doesn't talk about that yet. He, but we know, Jesus discerns, that these people are asking him questions because they want a sign in verse 16. Verse 27, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we have this worldly perspective on what blessing looks like. And this woman is so amazed by Jesus and said, Man, your mama must be really proud. God must have really blessed your mama to give her such an amazing son. She is amazing. And Jesus says, notice, Jesus doesn't say, no, my mom's not that great. Jesus actually expands her vision. Because Jesus is actually here, I want you to see this. Jesus is is claiming the blessedness of his mother. And the blessedness of others that can be equally blessed as his mother. Because it was Mary that said, that, that recognized her own blessing, that gave thanks to God and, and recognized her need for gratitude because of the great gift that God had given her. Elizabeth said, blessed are you. And so we know that Mary was blessed, but why was she blessed? Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us right here why Mary was blessed and how anyone can be blessed. You hear the word and you keep it. He said, it's not about my mother and, and her womb giving birth to me. It's about her hearing the word of God and doing what God told her to do. It's about an angel showing up to a young virgin girl and her saying, okay, as you have said, so let it be with me. Mary wasn't blessed just because she bore Jesus. Mary was blessed because she heard the word of God and did what it said. And so the sign of blessing here is clear for all of us. The blessing of God is here waiting for you. Anyone can receive the blessing of God. Hear the word, keep it. That's how you receive the blessing of God. And if there are, are any doubts as to whether or not you are hearing the blessing or you are hearing the word of God and keeping it, that's again where the unity of the body of Christ comes into play, right? Because if you're hearing the, if you're hearing the word of God in community, then you can discern the application of the word of God much more fully so you don't go off on your own. And the accountability to keep the word of God within the Christian community is all that much more stronger as well. And so, the call for us is, you want to be blessed. You don't need more money in your bank account. You don't need a better career. You don't need physical healing in order to be blessed by God. That's not the sign of your blessing. The sign of your blessing 
is, are you hearing the word of God and keeping it? And you may not see the fullness of your blessing in this life. In fact, that's normal. That's kind of the normal Christian life. That's actually the way we want it, right? I, I don't think any of us would choose temporary blessings over permanent eternal blessings. We want permanent eternal blessings. That's better. They last longer. They're fuller. We want blessings in the life to come more than we want blessings in the life here. But you know, it would be really nice sometimes to have blessings here, right? We're all humans. We all have those thoughts. But recognize with Jesus that the blessings that matter are the blessings that are eternal, and those come to those that hear the word of God and keep it. And now he has a sign of judgment. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Again, hearkening back to verse 16. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, y'all. What is going on in this passage? There's a question we have to ask. What is Jesus talking about? What is Jesus trying to tell us? What is Jesus trying to get us to do in response? He just told us, hear the word and keep it. Okay, Jesus, why are you talking about Tell us how to hear the word and keep it here. Well, Well, here's what I think is going on here. There is an evil generation that is seeking for a sign. And Jesus says, the signs are already there you know what to look for. It's the same sort of, uh, of commentary Jesus would give when he tells the scribes and Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find life, but they testify about me. He's basically confronting the misapplication of scripture to say, if you want a sign, go back a couple hundred years. Go back to the time of Jonah. Go back to the life of Jonah and you'll see the sign. And there's all sorts of implications here. I mean, one, you can say that Jonah was a sign of Christ in the way that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for multiple days and nights and then was resurrected and then came out. And and there is an illustration there of the work of Christ for redemption. And and as, as Jonah received new life coming out of the belly of the great fish, so Nineveh received the opportunity to repent, and boy, did they ever. But I actually think one of the things, one of the reasons he's using Jonah here is because of the surprising nature of the story of Jonah. There are not more, there are not many stories of prophets in scripture that are more surprising than Jonah's story. There's a lot more stories of prophets not being listened to than there are stories of prophets being listened to. Read the prophets and you'll see this. They were not well heard. They were not well respected, even though they were sent by God. There's also not a story of a, of a prophet that's more reluctant than Jonah. He's the only runaway prophet we got in the Old Testament. He's the only one that, I mean, Isaiah's over there. Here am I, send me. And God goes, okay, Isaiah, nobody's gonna listen to you. Good luck. But Jonah's over there like, No, God, I don't want to go. I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. 
And somehow God works through the hearers of, uh, of Jonah to bring this incredible repentance in the nation, uh, or in the city of Nineveh, the capital of the nation of Assyria, a great evil, a great powerful city in the day. So, so Jonah's there, I think, because of the surprising nature of the repentance. They were the least likely suspects to repent in the way they did, the Ninevites. And why is Solomon here? Well, the queen of the south is seeking pagan wisdom, is seeking wisdom outside of God, and yet even she is able to recognize, even the greatest of worldly wisdom recognizes God's wisdom. That, that's the surprising nature of the Solomon and queen of the south story. So whether you, you, you go back to the book of Jonah or 1 Kings 10, where you see the story of Solomon and the queen of the south, what you see here is the the world, the world recognizing the wisdom of God, the redemption of God, recognizing the need to repent. And what is the nation of Israel doing? Calling Jesus Satan. That's why, that's why in verse 32, he says to that generation of Israel, the Ninevites stand as stand in testimony against you. The queen of the south stand in stands in testimony against you because you guys had all the opportunity in the world to see the truth, to hear the truth and repent. And those who are far off have repented and you keep calling the work of God Satan. That's the sign of judgment, is a lack of repentance. So we have these, these three houses, the divided house, the uh, the protected house and the clean house. We have these two signs, the sign of blessing, hear the word and do it. The sign of judgment, a lack of repentance. It, it's, it's a really simple passage. But before we conclude, I want to go, go back through the whole thing just real quick. And I want to leave us with a couple steps, uh, two steps of application coming right straight from the passage. Hear the word and keep it. What do we hear in this? We hear God's power over the demonic, over the spiritual. Now, we recognize that our battle, as Paul says in Ephesians 6 to us, our battle that we are engaged in daily is a battle, but it's not a battle against other people. It's not a battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. That tells us that our battle is not a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. And so we need to understand the spiritual implications of what's going on here. So step one, hear the word. The Old Testament is all through this passage in ways that we might not readily see it. Now, everybody knows Jonah and Solomon are in the Old Testament, right? And I hope we know where to find them. There's a book called Jonah, and 1 Kings 10 tells us all about this Solomon with the queen of the south. But let, let's look back to Exodus chapter 8, because in verse 20 here, Jesus says something really powerful. Jesus is saying, okay, you think I'm working on behalf of Satan, but I'm telling you, what if? This is how he says it. If it is the finger of God, by which I cast out demons. What that shows you is that the kingdom of God is here. The new power is here. The new authority is here. The new reign is here. Why did Jesus say that? The finger of God. Back to Exodus 8. It actually sounds a whole lot like the illusions of Jonah and the Ninevites and the allusion to um, Solomon and the queen of the south. In Exodus 8, what's happening is um, there are plagues coming to the nation of Egypt. 
and the nation of Israel is there enslaved and has been for some time. And the nation of Egypt will not let the people go to the promised land as God desires. And so God is sending plagues. And the first couple plagues, the, Egyptians, the Egyptian magicians can mimic. They can't fully, completely replicate. But the Egyptian magicians have the power of the demonic. Let's, let's remember this. Through the power of the demonic in Exodus 8, the Egyptian magicians are mimicking God's plagues until all of a sudden they say, uh, we can't do this anymore. This truly is the finger of God. The magicians, with the power of the demonic, go toe-to-toe with God's messengers, Moses and Aaron. And they go toe-to-toe through a couple of plagues, and then eventually they throw up their hands and they say, Pharaoh, we can't go toe-to-toe with these guys anymore because they got the finger of God on their hand. And then in Exodus chapter 31, again, the finger of God does what? He writes the law on the tablets and gives them to Moses. And so here we have, let's not miss the way Luke tells the story and the way Jesus flows through life. Because what we've done is we've gone with the flow of the passage to see the three types of houses and the two types of signs. But now let's look back and see what is the grand narrative of redemption that Jesus is unpacking here. He is using every major section of the Old Testament to tell a story about his power and redemption. He's using the Torah, the first five books in Exodus 8, saying the Egyptians proclaimed the power of the finger of God in the Torah in Exodus 8. And then the next major section, the writings, which are the historical narratives and the works of wisdom. And in 1 Kings, we see this historical writing of Solomon the wise giving wisdom to this foreign queen who is recognizing the wisdom of God. So in the Torah, it's the Egyptian magicians praising the power of God. In the writings, it's this queen from the south. And then in the prophets, it is the wicked enemy of God, the Ninevites, who are declaring the power of God. And so Jesus, right here in only a few verses, in a few quick sayings, takes all three major parts of the Old Testament to tell his story of redemption and power and authority. This is not a new idea. But then take another step back three major sections of the Old Testament and also three major offices in the leadership of Israel, the, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet, as represented by Jonah, Jesus is the better prophet with a better message that leads towards not temporary redemption but permanent redemption. See, the Ninevites, they fell. The Ninevites did receive their judgment because their redemption lasted for a generation. Their repentance lasted for a generation, and therefore God kept from punishing them for a generation, and then they were punished. Jesus brings a much better message than the prophet Jonah. He's also pretty much just a better prophet all around. He comes as a willing prophet. He's a better priest than Moses. Moses, a Levite, who is the mediator of the law, the giver of the law to people. Moses presents the law, and Jesus presents a law that fulfills the law of Moses, and now a new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This new covenant in Christ that says we do, not, we do not pacify God by offering sacrifices for our sins. We actually enter into unity with Jesus the Son by his shed blood. Finally shed blood once and for all, for all sinners. The sacrifice that is acceptable to God and available to all. 
We've received Jesus and we've received new life. He is also the true and better king. He is the better prophet. He is the better priest. He is the better king with even more wisdom than Solomon could muster. Jesus is giving us the wisdom of what it means to follow him. So here's what we hear. That's the hearing. That the whole scripture is telling us this story of God's redemption over the spiritual enemy, Satan, and God's final victory established at the cross, a victory that surprises nobody because it was it was predicted in Exodus 8 and 1 Kings 10 and Jonah. We all knew throughout the old covenant, the whole telling of this story, that Jesus was, that the Messiah was going to, on God's behalf, overcome the enemy. It was always there. So now let's keep it. We've heard the word today. Let's keep it. How do we keep it? Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. We, we can't be neutral. Keeping the word of God today means no more neutrality. No more, well, I'll, I'll get serious in my faith tomorrow. No more, I'll repent of that sin tomorrow. No more, I'll yield my heart and, and mind to Christ tomorrow. While it is still called today, let today be the day of redemption. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And let's bring that in to not just the person of Jesus, but the body of Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. And so our commitment to Jesus is demonstrated in our commitment to his local body. Our commitment to the relationships and to the connections we have within the local expression of believers. Verse 17, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. We keep this word of God by recognizing that we are being called into a spiritual battle and to stand on Jesus' side. And to stand on Jesus' side is to stand with our brothers and sisters. To stand with those who have also been united with Jesus. And so, whatever the battle is that's raging in our heart and mind right now, whatever the anxiety is, whatever the fear is, whatever the frustration is, whatever gets you really riled up, we give it to Jesus. And we give it to Jesus as we give it to other people, our brothers and sisters. And we go to Jesus together. And we say we want to walk in the unity that comes from community in the kingdom of God. We want to fight for the unity of Christ's kingdoms by being of Christ's kingdom by being uniters and not dividers. By, 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 by focusing on the truth of Christ. And a uniter does expose truth in such a way that works us towards unity. Because what we're looking for in the kingdom of God is not for everybody to look the same and think the same and do everything the same. God is way too creative for that. We are looking for unity in Christ over uniformity in Christ because God has created us in the image of God, in his image, but God has also created us differently. And so challenges and disagreements within the body of Christ cause us to grow. Tension in relationships builds muscle. Tension builds strength. And so we let challenges, we let disagreements, we let hardships build strength as we learn how to walk together because if we stay committed to Jesus and he stays committed to Jesus and I don't like him very much anymore, we're going to remain committed to Jesus together because what unites us is more than what divides us. And so when there are disagreements within the body of Christ, we don't skirt around them, we don't pretend they don't exist, but we work for the greater unity. We work for this, this incredible vision that the word of God has given us. 
of what his kingdom looks like. And so um, the band's going to come up and going to lead us in a song, and I want you to hold this little cup throughout the whole song. And, and as you hold this little cup, what, what I want you to be thinking of is I want you to be reminded of the fact that this, this is the reminder of our union. That when we open this package up in a minute, and we'll do this at the end of the song, when we open this package up after the song, what we are going to do is we are going to proclaim by our actions that we are one with the body of Christ because we've received his broken body for us. And we are one with the body of Christ because we have had his blood shed for us. And so these are below your seat if you, don't, if you haven't seen it there already. I want you to hold it and I want you to reflect. And, and as we sing too, one more thing. This is a meal for believers. This is a, what we call a family meal here. And, and so this is for those that have bent their knee, received forgiveness at the cross, re received the shed blood of Jesus, poured out for us. And so when we do this in remembrance of him, we do this in confidence that we are one with him, that we have been saved by him. And so stand and sing, sit and reflect, whatever you do, hold this and reflect on the beauty of what has been accomplished for you at the cross. Worthy of every song we could ever sing And worthy of all the praise we could ever breathe You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
mind is together Take the cup and pull that first layer of plastic off, revealing the bread. And let's remember together just the tension of the moment. The tension of the moment as they were gathered, the disciples thought to receive the Passover and do what they had done so many times throughout their lives. And in that moment, they recognized that, that receiving the Passover was unlike anything that they thought it was. It was so much bigger, so much more. And Jesus took the Passover bread in his hands and he raised it up and he said, this is my body. So when, when you receive this, what you're doing is you are proclaiming, I'm with him. His body is in me. I'm a part of his body now. And we do this radical statement in remembrance of him. And then we take the cup. A reminder of the great gruesomeness of that next day when Jesus was beaten and bloodied, when his flesh was torn. Scripture says that there was no beauty about him that he should be desired. But in that state, he went to the cross for us so that we might receive new life in him. In taking this, you proclaim that your sins have been paid for, that your sins have been washed away, and that you are a new creation in Christ. And so do this in remembrance of him. And Father, we give you all of the glory and praise for the events of this day and every day. We turn our hearts and our minds over to you. We ask that you would lead us, 
We ask that as we go out, we go out with the fullness of assurance of your love for us and the clarity of what it means to follow you in community. That we would be uniters of the kingdom of God, not dividers. That we would be desperate to see your kingdom grow by being ambassadors to those that are outside. That we would be ambassadors of non-neutrality. Ambassadors asking people, pleading with people to make a decision. To make a decision to follow you and be welcomed into the family. So Father, may we go out in your presence for your glory. In the name of Christ Jesus, our sacrifice, amen. Before, I'm going to ask you to stand. And before we receive the blessing of the Lord this morning, I'm going to remind you that it has been our practice over many years that every time we receive the Lord's Supper, we also give. We give out of the abundance of what God has given to us through what we call the Samaritan Fund. And we have not taken up an offering for the Samaritan Fund in some time. And we will do that again at some point. But I want to remind you to give to the Samaritan Fund. That at any time we receive the Lord's Supper, we then give out of the abundance of what God has done in us. And so we give to the ministries of the church through regular offerings in the offering box and through online giving and through the office. That goes to fund the ministries of the church. The Samaritan offering is different. It is outside of the general budget of the church, and all of that money goes out. It goes out to serve the community, to serve those in need. And, and just in this last week, we have had multiple, multiple people in great financial need that have been helped through the Samaritan Fund. And, and that's what we do as a response to his greatness. So I encourage you this week to give both towards the general ministry of the church as part of your regular tithing, but also to give an abundance beyond to what's called the Samaritan ministry. We're not taking an offering, but you can, you can put Samaritan in a memo line of a check or fill it out on the envelopes we have in the giving or through online giving. But I just want to remind you that fund is important because that's a branch of our gospel ministry to meet real physical needs and to proclaim the answer to spiritual needs along the way. And now, receive the blessing of the Lord as we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.